it's not the way we usually operate here is, but I would call it the problem and the promise. In this morning, I love, we're kind of shifting. He's been talking so much about the problem that everything so far has been talking about the problem. And last week we saw the reality that the problem ultimately rested in the fact that they thought that for justification, that is, we may also say salvation, that it was faith. But as for sanctification, as for the rest of their Christian life, surely they had to be brought under the law. Surely there was something more than simply faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll go ahead and say to you, as we said last week, that's a certain problem for all of us that we're tempted. Is it just faith in Christ? Is what is going to save me? Is what is going to keep me? Is it faith alone in Jesus Christ? And last night I made the terrible mistake as we were celebrating uh, our nation's independence, as we were celebrating with my father-in-law last night, I made the mistake of picking up a book that I had lent to his household some time ago, and it's a book by the title of The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I started reading the titles, and I started reading the section headings and the chapter headings, and all I could do was follow on the conviction of realizing how often I'm discontented. How that this week there were evidences of discontentedness in my own life and how I just get discontented with this. After having preached uh, Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 last week, it is there is a fight of whether or not we are contented with the things of Christ. Is Christ enough to hold us or do we need something more? That's the problems that the Galatians were facing is they had been bewitched. They had been led astray by these things. And then finally we find ourselves in verse 13. Really all we're doing is we just ended the sermon halfway through last week. So this is not necessarily a different sermon. This is just the sermon part two, as it were, as let us read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it has no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. 
Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the wonderfulness that is just contained in this passage of God. Father, understanding that even the world's major religions fall into the problems that are being faced here in this letter of Galatians chapter 3, how humbling of an experience it is that you've included us in this self-same promise, oh God. Father, we just pray that we would be faithful to your word this morning, that you would feed your lambs and feed your sheep as only you can, that we would give you all the honor and glory, God, that you would use it to draw somebody to you that has never been born again, God, that they would repent and trust only in you. God, perhaps it is a believer that has began to walk astray. Would you call them back to yourself, that we may all repent and further trust in you? God, would you use it to strengthen the church on the whole, oh God, that we would be on mission for you, that we would be able to tell somebody else about this blessed promise that you have given us, oh God. Father, just how we rejoice and are glad in you this morning. We pray all these things, that you would open our ears, open our eyes, and sow these things into us, that they would bear fruit in due season. It's in thy son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen and amen. So again, this morning as we've been talking about Paul, largely up to now, has been dealing with the problems that, hey, Galatians, there's a problem. There's not much of an accommodation that Paul makes to these people. He, he launches right into what the problem is. And sometimes that's the nature of a conversation that we have with somebody. Some people, we have to butter up a little bit. We have to be nice to them. We have to ease into it. But apparently Paul had the relationship with these Galatians that he just tears into them. But he had alleviated a little bit. He had been telling them. He said, look, you're not the only ones that had a problem. I had problems. Peter and them had problems. There's been a bunch of problems over here. And that's been an assurance and a comfort. But as we saw last week, he opened up with, oh, foolish Galatians. He humbled us back down. He took us back down to the lower level and said, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who has shined something, face, something shiny in your life and led you astray? And again, we discovered last week as we were walking through how each of us face those temptations that when something's shiny, it draws us. We want to look like the rest of the world. We want to have the best of everything now. We want to look like everybody else looks so that we don't look like an oddball. But we forget the truth of the reality is the fact that we're called to be a peculiar people. Not just peculiar for peculiarness' sake. We don't want to just be a bunch of weirdos just for the sake of being weird. But, beloved, if you're living for Christ, there are present realities that eventually you're going to do some things that separate you from the rest of the world. I was talking with a dear classmate of mine. We had a five-year reunion from high school, and the way they planned it, we're already talking about, I say we, they're talking about planning the 10th, apparently. And I said, do me one favor. Ask them not to have it at a brewery because the last one was at the brewery. Now, could I have gone, and I could have gone to that, not drank, not participated, and everything been okay? That would have been perfectly fine for me to have been able to do that. 
but I would have been convicted. It would have been something that was best not for me to do. The appearance of that would not have been wise for me. Am I saying somebody's condemned for doing that? Not necessarily. But I also read in the Bible where it says it might be right for you to do something, but it's not right for me to do. And if I know it to be wrong to me and to be sin to me, if I go and do that thing, then I have committed sin. I knew it was better if I didn't go do that. I knew it was better if I didn't go there. So I said, hey, I'd like to come to the tent for one. Just don't hold it there. I can't go to it if we do these things. There's some things that are different. And I love the conversation I had about that yesterday and how genuine it was. Some people said, well, it doesn't look good enough. We don't know why we're hosting it here. Somebody said, well, it's because it was free. And I thought, well, that made a lot of sense to this old Smith boy. But all of a sudden, it's all about appearances. It's all about these things. And, beloved, whether you realize it or not, do you know every one of us is faced with that? It's how things appear. And again, that's what we talked about with that word bewitched. I guess I'm still on that point of bewitched from last week, is that we're all talking about how things look and how things appear because we're afraid of everybody else in this world. We're afraid of what things might look like to somebody else. The bravest people in the world I know wind up still having this fear that they're not going to look like somebody. But beloved, the best news about it is, is Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. To where once we were guilty before Christ, once we were looking, are we maintaining the right things? Are we living the right way? Are we living certain ways? Again, I've used examples. Somebody reminded me about my haircut. Yes, I went and got my haircut. Had nothing to do with who I'm hanging around. It has to do with I'm going to be hot this week. I needed less hair on top of my head. I needed something. My father-in-law, he shaved his beard not to look any better, but just because it's hot outside. He's tired of it being so hot on his face. There are some things that are practical. But, beloved, there are some things that we fall under conviction about. In, in verse 13 where it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Talk about appearances. What is it that Christ hung on a tree? If Christ was the perfect and the holy one that had never committed any sin in any wise, why was it that he was the one that was hung upon a tree? Why was it the one that he was cursed? Do you not remember from Galatians chapter 1 the language that it kept using about let anyone that preaches unto you a different gospel be accursed? It's communicating some of those same ideas that Christ was made the offering in our stead, that we were cursed because we were under the law. We had no hope. We had no means of redemption because we were under the law, but it was Christ that was able to bring us out from that, not because he simply did away with it, but because he bore the curse of it himself. That all the law was always pointing to was just we're guilty. The law never pointed to a means of salvation other than pointing to the lamb that was to come to the one that was to be slain. The law was always being used to point to a greater reality. And frankly, we have laws on the books to this day. That, do you know what ultimately our laws are about is there's a decent way to live and there's an indecent way to live. And we're just asking you to live decently. There's laws on the highways that I, I'll just confess my sins. I'm not too good at obeying those laws. Some of those laws I break on the regular. And I got, I got a kick out of this. The other day that the sheriff of Harrelson County came on the social media and he said, we understand how some of us will push the limits on this, but don't be going excessively. I love that the sheriff had enough sensibility to realize that somebody going 70 down Highway 27 may not be that bad of a problem, but somebody going 108, which they showed somebody clocked at, that's a problem on the interstate. And beloved, if it were not for those laws, that's exactly what we would all be doing. We would think that we were in Germany on the Autobahn. We would think we could just run as fast as we possibly could. If that would be the goal of it is to run as fast as we could, I would be one of those people. My truck would be flipped over on the side of the road. I have taken a turn too fast before and realized I've got to slow down or I'm going to die. 
Beloved, that's exactly what the law is supposed to do, is to remind us that's acting indecently. Not only is it acting indecently, it's placing our health in problem. Every law that exists ultimately exists because the government is responsible for life. That's why when we talk about things in terms of the church, when we talk of things, especially about the matters such as abortion, when we're talking about protecting life, you had better bet your bottom dollar. We're going to argue that abortion should be made illegal. But there's a lot of other matters that the church probably just shouldn't get that involved about. I've seen the church involve itself in so many situations in the rest of this world that I thought it might just be best that the church just step back and let the world work that problem out. But when it comes to something such as life, we need to be on the forefront. We don't need to be in every problem. We don't need to be in every controversy there is. I don't know if anybody else is on Twitter. I recommend you get off of it. There's no good in Twitter, i found, other than controversy and disagreements with one another. And please, whatever you do, don't follow the evangelicals on, on Twitter just because it becomes a cesspool of bad thoughts. It becomes a cesspool of bad realities. Beloved, I use all of these examples because of the reality is every one of us falls under these truths that we needed the law to guide us we needed something to be a guide to us and that's exactly what paul fleshes out he says in verse 14 as he continues on it says that the blessing of abraham might come on the gentiles through jesus christ that what paul is arguing is here galatians you're trying to limit this thing you're trying to limit who's getting into this you're trying to limit who's coming into the church and who's being made a part of this salvation. You're seeking to limit who's welcome to God's table. Y'all, we're not in charge of who's on the invitation list. In case y'all didn't know it, we've got a couple here that's getting married. And they've been sending out invitations. They've been going through the list. Two years ago, do you know what Terry and I had to do a whole bunch of? We had to go to the list. We, said, we had to see who's on the list. And the worst part about it is not everybody could be on the list. And there were some of them we looked at and we said, we don't want them on the list. They might should be on the list. We don't want them on the list. I don't know if y'all have ever had to do that. But there's just some folks that it winds up. There was a list. Some people were on it. Some people weren't. But do you know what the glorious reality of is? You and I don't get to make the list for Jesus. You and I are not in charge of the invitation list. We don't get to limit who walks in those doors. We are careful who comes into membership of this church. We are careful who we take into the membership. And that is a special guard that there should be on that. We are careful about those things. But when it comes to somebody walking in through those doors, they're welcome into these doors. If they're not causing a ruckus, if they're not causing some kind of controversy and everything else, and even if they do, we'll handle it in the best way that God gives us sense to in the moment. I can't tell you the answer to every problem. I've had people ask me about, well, what do you do in this hypothetical situation? I don't know. God gives grace in the moment, though I've learned that is that, beloved, we'll face the controversies when we do, but we invite everyone and everybody that we possibly can. So many of us, now I submit to you, Crowdson County looks a lot like us that are seated here this morning, but I submit to you that there's a problem in so many of our churches. Some people have well articulated that the most segregated hour in all of America in 2020s is the church, is that we have the black church and we have the black church we have the Hispanic church, we have this church, we have that church, and the, there's not much mixture in between. I'll never forget going to the Carroll County Water Authority. I had to drop off something there, and I saw, and my, my old country myself, I didn't know that there were two First Baptist Carrolltons down there. I didn't know all about that, and I remember walking in, and I said, First Baptist, did they build a new campus out here? And I remember that lady, she peered across the desk, and she looked around to see if anybody was out there, and she said, no, no, that's, that, that's the black First Baptist. Well, what do you mean that's the black first baptist do you mean to tell me there's a white first baptist and there's a black first baptist and i think this was 2018 i said in 2018 we've got this kind of segregation in the united states and it absolutely is beloved and do you know what most of it is 
is because they don't look like us, we don't go share the gospel with them. It's because they don't act like us, because they're not submitted to the same cultural laws and stuff that we do. And I'm not just talking about somebody that's going to get a different skin color. I'm talking about those hipsters at the coffee shop that I can't seem to reach them too well. I don't, I don't fall under that hipster vibe. I don't fall under that hipster look over there. Am I just going to ignore them because I don't look like them, because I don't talk like them, I don't carry on the same conversation with them? Surely that would not be the case. Surely after Jesus came and died on the cross, nobody would be excluding others on the basis of race, on the basis of culture. And yet in the book of Galatians, within the first hundred years after Christ was resurrected, that's exactly the problem that the church has. And it's not the only time it's dealt with. In the book of Acts, the entire reason that deacons were needed to come on board was because of racism in the church, because of the Samaritans, the half-breeds, the half-bloods, as it were, they were not being served like the rest of the pure-bloods were. It sounds like something out of a Harry Potter novel. And yet it happened in the church. And if we're not careful, it will happen with us. If we're not careful, we'll limit the sharing the gospel to those who look like us, those who talk like us, those who help me are Republicans, and we're not going to go reach Democrats. We're not going to go reach this branch. We're not going to go reach that branch. A Navy man's not going to reach a Marine. A Marine's not going to reach an Army. All of these different cultural variances that may be true, that as laughable as it may seem, this is exactly what we do. We separate ourselves. The tendency is to put a separating factor between us and the rest of the world. I want to look better, so I separate myself from these other people. When in reality, if you study the book of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 1, I love how he says toward the end of it, he said, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. He goes through all of these terrible sins. And maybe we're inclined to be reading Romans chapter 1 and be like, thank you, God, I'm not that. Thank you, God, I'm not that. Thank you, God, I'm not that. And then it says, and such were some of you. And it's like, oh, that was me. Beloved, we're no better than what these people were. If anything, Paul is showing these people that probably were naturally Jews. He's saying every one of you was under the curse. And yet Christ is the one who bore the curse for you. Not only did he bear the curse for you, he bore the curse for you and for anyone who would believe. That means any Gentile, anybody who's on the outside, anybody who looks different than you, anybody who talks different from you, that's the one that the Spirit is inviting to himself. He says in verse 15, it says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, if it yet be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth unto. Paul is saying that, yes, though it looks like it is a man's covenant, if it's confirmed, then we know it's truth. I love, I call it the test of Gamaliel in the book of Acts, again with the book of Acts. But the test of Gamaliel, as we often call it, as some of you may remember, is that when they were sharing the gospel over there, Gamaliel was on the Sanhedrin council, and he looked to the rest of the council, and they were trying to figure out what to do about this early movement. He said, y'all, he said, there's not much we can do. I'm paraphrasing here. This isn't the King James Version. This is Acts Smith Version over here. So go read it for yourself in the book of Acts, to where he says, if this be of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And if it not be of God, then there's nothing we can do to stop it anyway, because God will stop it. Beloved, that's the mark of whether it be of God or not, is what we submit ourselves to. That if it is a covenant between God and man, then no man can add to it, and no man can disannul it. If God is inviting the Gentiles in, there's nothing we can do. He's going to invite them in. In verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to the seed which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was 
confirmed before God in Christ the law, which was 430 years, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. There is 400 and there is 430 years between Abraham and when the law was given, and yet the entire focus became about the law. Every bit of Israel became focused on, am I following the law? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? It became a list of do's and don'ts to them that are we following these things? Are we not following the things? And worse than that, it wasn't just the law that God gave to them in the Ten Commandments or in the rest of the law that he gave them. It was that the Sanhedrin had added unto it. We'd hedged about it. We'd put signs up. We'd put fences up. We kept expanding and expanding and expanding the borders so that we wouldn't come near touching any of these things. We became so protective of it that we missed the entire point. It was not necessarily about being protected of it. It was about enjoying the presence with God. Beloved, hell is a real place that exists, and yet if it only ever becomes that all we ever talk about is, thank God I'm not going to hell. And granted, that's a song that I've heard and I've enjoyed singing before, but I think about the realities of that song sometimes. Yes, I'm thankful that I'm not going to hell, but I am ever more thankful to be in the presence of Christ himself when we find ourselves in eternity. Are we talking about the mansions up there in heaven? You asked me and my brother, and we got sick of singing about a mansion up in heaven because it seemed that's all that was ever the focus. And I love my brother and his hunger for the Word of God as it has grown over the years. As I've watched, we've just been growing together in that sentence. Is that for the last several years, we've been growing on that same trajectory together of growing in the love of God's Word ever more. And as it happened, we got tired of singing about mansions in heaven. Not that there's anything wrong. Yes, even Christ promises a mansion. There's nothing wrong with that. But has the mansion become the focus? When I go into some churches, all I ever hear them talk about is heaven. Very little of Christ, but all about heaven. All about the street of gold. All about the fancy things of heaven. And yet little about Christ. And yet, beloved, do you see that that's the same problem that the Sanhedrin had? The same problem that most of the Jews had is they could talk about the law at length. The law was a, not a necessarily a bad thing. The law had glory of itself. When we talk about the law, it's easy for us to look back to it and say how awful that was. But really and truly, it was a good thing. But it was a thing that was meant to lead you onto something else. It was actually a curse. The reality of the law was a curse because you realized you could never live according to the law yourself. There was a standard that had been set which you and I never could meet. Nobody in the house of Israel had ever met this standard. The only reason anybody in the house of Abraham was ever saved was because of the promise that was made to Abraham. Not just because they belonged to the lineage of Abraham, but because of the promise that was made to the seed of Abraham, which is Christ Jesus. He said, not as unto seed, as of many, but as of one seed that is Christ Jesus. He was the hope from the beginning of the promise that had been made unto Abraham. The law just made us realize we were incapable to point us to Christ. The more incapable I become, the more I have to share with others. The more real my brokenness is, the more I want to share with others. It says in verse 18, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is of no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Is salvation something that you keep on your own? Or is it the promise and the gift of God? Is it something that you have to work to your own advantage? Now it does say work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It does say that. But it doesn't say that you're the savior of yourself. The greatest reality that I find in this verse is the fact that it ain't up to me. 
It's not that I can save myself. But the biggest problem that I have with this is I can't keep it up myself either. Because you know what? I got saved as a nine-year-old boy. Y'all heard this story so many times. There was not there was enough sin to send anybody to a, to a world of eternal fire, to a, a place of eternal torment. There was enough sin in my life, even at nine years old, to do that. But, beloved, I can assure you the majority of all my sins have come after I was born again. That doesn't seem to line up to me. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. That all of a sudden, Jesus, I've got to do something. I've got to repent. I've got to make up for this. And that all of it is is whether or not I come back to him and I believe and I trust in this promise. And I don't know about y'all this morning, but that makes me feel uh, not even knee-high to a grasshopper. That lowers me down. That in all of the foolish, sinful things I've ever done in my life, all he's asking me to do is trust in this promise. That humbles me down because it's not something I have to do. If it was something that I had to do, I might boast. If it was something that I had to do, I might make boasting of it. I would fail anyway, but maybe I could boast about it. I remember talking to this one gentleman, and he said, I said, well, you know, we were talking about salvation and all these matters, and I can't remember every detail about the conversation. But he said, what if I never did a bad thing? And I'm like, the reality is you've done more than one bad thing. The reality is, though the rest of the world deems you to be good, it's about whether or not you're in the promise of God not whether you look like this or whether you look like that or whether you're keeping up with the Joneses or whoever you want to keep up with. It's about whether or not you belong to the promise of God. Not whether you can keep up with every law of Israel, but whether or not you belong to the promise. In verse 19 it says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Again, wherefore serveth the speed limit? It was added because of transgressors. It was added because I've got a left foot. And if they didn't put some kind of speed limit out there, I'd be going 120 miles an hour down the road and wind up dead in a ditch or killing somebody else. But if they put a speed limit on it, i got to slow down because I know somebody might catch me. It's never a fun day when somebody catches you going too fast. It's embarrassing. It just puts the rest of your day, the rest of your week off because you realize when I had that happen, when I was going too fast and this state patrolman decided to pull me over, when that happened to me, I couldn't fight it. I'm just like, yes, sir, I'm guilty. What do you want me to do about it? What do I need to do next? And he was kind enough and he was gracious enough and merciful enough that day. He just said, be safe, slow down, get to work. That's all he said to me. Can't remember his name, but I was sure enough bragging on to him to his boss's wife the next time I saw her. I was sure bragging about him now because he was kind to me and he was gracious to me. He had me what we I what I'd call dead to rights. He could have written me a ticket. I'd have had to pay it. It would have been expensive. I would have been mad about it for a long, long time. But he was merciful to me then that morning. Beloved, ultimately that's one of the greatest things about the law too. It shows us that we were cursed, but that Christ died in our stead. That's not something we can get haughty about. It says in verse 19, the other part of it, it says, Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Why do we need a mediator? It says, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Righteousness has never been by the law. Righteousness never will be by the law. The law just shows us where we're unrighteous. The law shows us where we are wrong. In verse 22, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, 
that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Beloved, I would love to expound on these verses, but there's no greater expounding than what these verses declare. Is that he was our, the law was our schoolmaster. It just showed me what it was. That when I was real young, when I was four and five years old, I didn't need to know the why behind the rules that mama and daddy gave me. When I was four and five years old, I didn't even know why not to touch the stove. I just needed to know, don't touch the stove. I didn't need to know why not to run out to the middle of the road. I just needed to know not to run out to the middle of the road. There was a point in time to where I didn't need to know the why behind everything. I just needed to know not to do it. But then there became a point in time where I needed to know why. And I think they and Daddy always joke about they picked me up from Walmart. So I think they picked me up from Walmart, Missouri, because sometimes I'm a show me person. You got to show me things. You got to prove to me these things. I've got to know the why behind these things. And that's gotten me in trouble so many times. But do you know that the schoolmaster, the law was a schoolmaster to bring me to him? I had to learn some things. Didn't always know I had to learn. Now, I learned some things in school that I'm still not convinced I didn't know them. I'll let y'all know if I use many of those mathematic formulas. I've never used them yet. I'll tell you if I begin to use them one day. There's a lot I learned in school that I didn't need to know. But beloved, the school that he put us in was the school of the law. He brought us to know the school was our school. The law was our schoolmaster to make us realize that we needed God. It wasn't that I would just live according to those standards. It's not that when I went through Bremen High School that I would have a degree and that would be the end of my life. I hope my brother doesn't mind me using this example, but it's coming to me. So, brother, I'm going to use it. You can get on to me after. There's a meeting one upon, once upon a time that Tyler had with some of the graduates of his school, and somebody was real frank with him. And he said, For some of you, this will be the greatest thing you ever do in your life. And he said, That ought not to be so. I can't remember all the details of the conversation, but that has stuck with me that conversation that he had with whoever that was. He said, For some of these boys, this will be the greatest thing they ever do with his life. For some of these people, this will be the greatest thing they ever do with their life. If the law was the greatest thing everybody ever, anybody ever did with their life, all they did was find themselves guilty. The best of the Sanhedrin, all they ever did was find themselves guilty before God. They could never keep the law perfectly. It was meant to lead us. To Christ. It was meant to be that schoolmaster that brings us to Christ, that brings us to faith. It says in verse 26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The problem that Paul and them began to face was they said, you've got to be of the circumcision. You've got to belong unto the Jews. And then the problem that Peter had over there was the fact that he would not eat with people that didn't look like him, that didn't talk like him, that were not of the Jewish faith, that were not of the circumcision over there. The problem that the Galatians had was they were limiting who was invited to the Lord's table, and yet they were missing the entire point of the law that it's all about Christ. And if you're in Christ, then the rest of this doesn't matter. 
That's a profound truth we need to realize and we need to learn. Now, perhaps you're like me. I'm not a Jew. I've never had to wrestle with this problem. I've never been around that many Jews. I've been around a few, but I've never been around that many Jews. It's never been a problem about whether or not I was living according to the Jewish faith. I would imagine that for most of you, it's never been a problem about whether we held the law up. So what then, therefore, is the point of this book? Why do we have this book in there? There's a lot of other, a lot of other good stuff toward the end of the book, but why do we have the first four chapters of the book? Why are we spending so much time in the first four chapters of the book? Because, beloved, do y'all realize we're tempted to do these same things? That we'll put requirements on here. That you got to look this certain way. You got to dress this certain way. You got to be wearing this. Or you got to be wearing that. Or you're not going to be accounted among them. It's just like I joke about my dear friend that's in his 70s there, maybe in his 60s, in his late 60s, early 70s, that he wears flip flops to preach. I'm not going to do it. I just don't think anybody ever ought to do that. I don't think any male ought to wear flip flops in public if you ask me. That's just my rule. But again, if I add that to make that part of salvation, then I've gone wrong. If again, I'll go back to the scripture reading, same point we made last week. Thankful to y'all for being faithful and thankful to y'all for challenging yourself to reading in the word of God. But if we make that a requirement, if we were to add that to something like membership and say, if you're going to be a membership road Baptist church, you've got to read so many chapters of the Bible a week. Please somebody wake up and say we've gone wrong. Do y'all realize that these are the same political and cultural pressures that we have to this day? They're weighing down on us. That if you have affiliated yourself with a certain party, that party's putting pressure on you now to live according to the principles of the party as it's never been before. They're putting pressure on you to live according. Toe the party line. Toe the party line. Toe the party line. Sometimes the party line needs to be broken because it is in contradiction with the word of God. Sometimes when I vote for somebody, I don't want to vote for them. There's been very few elections. There have been a few. I've been glad to vote for some. I really have, not just one in particular, but there's been more than just one. I'm sure I'm proud to vote for him. There's been more than him that I'm proud to vote for. There's been a lot I had to hold my nose and vote for. It's never fun. I had to hold my nose knowing there was no good option. The reality is, for most of us in this world, there's no good options. But do you know what? When I share the gospel, it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how broken, how derelict of a life they might live. We got a lot of trailer parks around us. Some people have problems with going into the trailer parks. Some time ago, probably over a year ago, some of us went into what's kind of a rough neighborhood in some ways. There's some nice houses through there. There's some nice people through there. It's kind of a rough neighborhood just up the road from us here. But do you know what I found with every one of those people we interacted with? They just seemed to be kind, good, honest people. Terry and I moved into a community that there's some bad things that go on. We're pretty sure one of our distant neighbors is a drug dealer. We're pretty sure about that. We kind of monitor the situation. We kind of got that one put two and two together about what's going on at that house. We had two and two to put together on what's going on in the rest of that house. Terry and I thought we had moved into a bad neighborhood. Then we got no Miss Virginia behind us. She's one of the sweetest ladies I've ever met. She can't hear anything, but she sure is sweet. The neighbor across the road from us invited my wife. He thought for some reason I was out of town all the time. He just told my wife, he said, if you ever need a meal, you ever need anything, you just come see us. Miss Redden across the road from us, she takes care of us. It amazes me when I stopped and got to know somebody, I found her just like me. When I stop and get to know the rest of this world, I found out their problems are just as bad as mine. They've been painted like the boogeyman. They've been painted to be all these bad things in this world. 
They're no worse than us. They need Jesus just like I need Jesus. Despite what party they're under, despite what social level of life they may be in, they need Jesus just as much as you and I do. Let us be faithful to share with them Jesus. Let us look and see there's neither Republican nor Democrat. There's neither Southerner nor Northerner. There's neither this, there's neither that. But all are one in Christ Jesus. Let us be profoundly united under the banner of Christ and Christ alone. This morning we get to celebrate the Lord's table together. Now most of us, well, I, I imagine we find ourselves in agreement about most things. But if you get to talking to us, there's probably something we disagree about. There's probably this level or that level of this issue we just disagree on. But I love when we come to the Lord's table because all of that passes away and we all agree together when we participate in the Lord's table that we are one in Christ Jesus. Let us go to the Lord's table one more time.